Hi, Subtextual fam. This is us coming to you from our Oscars party. And in case you didn't watch the awards this year, Jane Campion took home Best Director for this film. Yay! We wildly overestimated this film and assumed that it would win Best Picture and waited until now to drop this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you. But uh, nothing else of note really happened at the Oscars. Nope. Nope. Nothing I can think of. Nothing weird. No weird speeches at all. <laughs> We will be with you next week for our reactions and our unpacking of the actual Oscars. So for now, enjoy Power of the Dog. See you next week. See ya. Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, Sam. Hi, Lizzie. How's it going, babe? It's going good. You and I just um, shotgun some sushi rolls, so <laughs> I'm in a great state of mind. Um, I can use another shot of tequila, so maybe at the halfway point we'll do a second shot. When you feel like we've gotten to a plot point that deserves a shot of tequila, I will take one with okay. you. Oh, gosh, there are some. Um, they didn't do enough drinking in this film. Well, I guess Rose did. But... We should do a shot every time Kirsten Dunst hits the bottle. Kirsten? We'd be drunker than her. Kirsten? Kirsten. I thought you Kirsten. Cr- I thought you said Kirsten. I did say Kirsten. How do we find out which one's right? How to How do we find out which <laughs> one's right? <laughs> Kirsten Dunst. Here we go. Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten. Kirsten. God. Kirsten Dunst. Anyway, so we're talking about Power of the Dog today, which you and I actually watched together last night which we don't often do, um, but I'm glad that we did because I saw this film about a month ago and it honestly has been just stuck in my head like an arrow in my brain. And I'm so curious to hear what you think about it. Yeah, I I watched it with you last night and my first impressions were very strong. I was gagged. So many different moments that were like appeared rather meaningless. And then when you go back, you just see the like mastery of planning and storytelling, like Jane Campion did a fantastic job. This is a really good movie. Yeah, I think this is a movie that gets better with more watches. Mm -hmm. Because the first time I saw it, I honestly was very excited to see it, which is a bad place to a bad way to enter a movie personally, because I've been disappointed before. So it was the first film that I went on to my Letterboxd account and just selected watched and didn't put any rating because I yeah. didn't know if I was going to give it like half a star or 13 million stars. Yeah. But after a second watch, I was like 13 and a million one stars. I think this I, movie. I think I did that last night on Letterboxd. Really? I just said like watched because I was like, I need to be <laughs> present and like understand how I feel. I went like I went to marry me and like gave like a <laughs> shitty review on that movie. And then I went to this movie and I was like, I saw it. Period. <laughs> yeah. Neutral. Don't ask me how now. I feel about it yet. <laughs> well, we're going to unpack that today. The more I think about this film, the more excited I get about it. So, and I'm so glad to be extending the queer cowboy movie genre past Brokeback Mountain. It's about time because cowboys are the gayest people on earth. True or false? True. I I told my girlfriend last night when I was describing this movie as uh, Lizzie Bate. It, it truly God. The only way I could have gotten there quicker is if Timothée Chalamet played the Peter character. And, okay, what makes very good Lizzie Bate, I think this movie (laughs) has all elements, was based off a book, Cowboys, Mm. Benedict Cumberbatch, and Jane Campion. Like, it's like catnip for you. I just rolled around in it all excited, got my little whiskers all tingling. Like, if I needed to trap you in some sort of thing, (laughs) I would just put this right at the back of the trap and you would scurry in there. In the box with, like, the string. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So it's Oscar season, which is always a buzz and always means I'm watching like 15 movies a day. Um, So I kind of wanted to walk through this movie through the nominations it's received because it received the most nominations of any film this year uh, with a total of 12. More than Belfast? More than Belfast. Wow. The next highest nominated film is Dune with 10. Good for them. Um, Yeah. and, And this also received like all the heavy hitting category uh, nominations. So 
Using that as our basis, I want to be able to talk about like every layer of this film, and I think this is a good way to do it. This film was nominated for three acting categories, Best Actor, Supporting Actor, and Supporting Actress, Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Sound, Production Design, Editing, Original Score, Cinematography, and of course, Best Picture. Hell yeah. So yeah, let's dive on in and start with the queen of this motherfucker, Jane Campion. Mm. Woo. Uh, 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 uh. What do you, do you have, like, what's your history with Jane? I was a religious fan of Top of the Lake. Um, I, I went back and looked at her filmography and she's got so many things, but the only thing I have a real connection to is Top of the Lake. But when I say I love that show... I love that show. I was so taken aback when I found out Elizabeth Moss was a Scientologist because I was like, it, I don't want anything to touch that show. I want it to live in a glass case and, and nothing touch it. Yeah. But um, I think she did an incredible job. I was looking for clips from that show to show you today and I just couldn't find anything. I just don't know a lot of people who've seen it. People have been sleeping on this series. Even people I know, my friends who are fans of Jane Campion have never seen or even heard of Top of the Lake. Mm -hmm. And that was my introduction to her. And that show is just mind-blowingly good. Like if, Incredible. If you have a brain and eyes and you like seeing women do anything cool, I really suggest you watch Top of the Lake. Especially if you enjoyed this movie. It's also filmed in New Zealand, if which you, is where she's from. If you liked Big Little Lies, this show has like that kind of, it's like a fast pace, but it feels very slow and the characters are really fleshed out and I think you would like this show too. There's a lot of suspense. So much suspense and so much landscape porn, yes. which we also get treated to in Power of the Dog. Um, so Jane Campion found this story whenever she stumbled across the book that this was based on of the same title, The Power of the Dog, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. And she picked it up, couldn't stop reading it. So she got the rights for the film. I mean, I'm sorry. She got the rights for the book, which it had already been optioned five times to be Jeez. made into a movie. Yeah. By various different independent and studio filmmakers and just never got off the ground. This felt like the right time for this movie. Even like post-COVID, I think the post-COVID audience was ready for this movie as well. I think if it had come out sooner, it might not have hit as hard. Yeah. Because um, of just the isolation of it, you know, like we understand and aren't afraid and aren't bored by isolation because we've been in it for so long. Mm -hmm. We're able to like see the pain and pleasure from isolation. Yeah. And the like social awkwardness of most of these interactions. I, I'm not a gay rancher, but like, I, <laughs> I can relate to that. You're not, you're like one degree away from a gay rancher. I am very, very adjacent to being a gay rancher. <laughs> we can talk about that later. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it'll come up. So yeah, she developed it for a year with her DP, Ari Wegner, and dove into this shit. And like looking at Jane Campion's prior work. This is actually the first story she's done that wasn't centered around a female protagonist, hmm. which is super interesting. And I think the way that she handled masculinity in the film is really nuanced and really, really interesting. And she tied a lot of really visual motifs into that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, do you have any just general thoughts about masculinity and how it played out in the characters? Yeah, I think that um, Lizzie likes to say cowboys are gay. And I agree. <laughs> um, my father raises horses and I've been on horses my entire life. And my father is a very emotional person, but I wouldn't say that he's very good at communicating how he's feeling all the time. And I find that men who have this like inclination towards nature, I guess it kind of fills this like thing that they're not getting somewhere else, this like connection and this ability to like communicate silently with things like especially horses, which you have to train an obscene amount. And then your trust with the animal is unique and it's based in respect. It's like so incredibly masculine, but like you also have a connection with the earth that's inherently like feminine. So I find like, especially in all these like cowboy stories that I see like in Hollywood, I know they're trying to write it to be so masculine, but it just seems so sweet to me. Like, mm -hmm. it just seems like all of these characters are looking for something else. Yeah, absolutely. There's a theme of like always traveling and always going somewhere, but never actually getting there. Mm -hmm. Like a searching and a longing and just a deep loneliness, because I can imagine if you were a rancher, especially in the early 20th century, like this film takes place. 
Like you're spending deep amounts of time on your own. And even if you're sleeping in the same room with someone like Phil and George, the two brothers do, like you're in your head, Mm -hmm. you're with your animals and with nature all around you. So I totally hear what you're saying with that. Um, Like one of the motifs that really stuck out to me in this like kind of masculine feminine dichotomy that the characters, particularly Phil and Peter, were always like pulling against is the idea of these rabbits. Like, I think when you think of a rabbit and the first time we see a rabbit is when Peter brings one to his mom in bed to kind of cheer her up. It's a very tender moment. This is the first time we see Rose get really silly and giggly and she's so excited to see this little rabbit. Oh, it's so cute. And she like cuddles it and kisses it. And that's juxtaposed immediately with the next scene, which is Peter like cutting the rabbit open with a scapula in this very like meticulous adult way. So I think this kind of shows us how Peter himself is stepping into two worlds at the same time. Like he's in this very like, I'm like close to my mother, very feminine, caring, fluffy, bunny loving boy Mm -hmm. to like a hard, like a scientific and meticulous person who's more in the realm of men in the, in the realm of science. I don't um, know if I agree with that. Well, tell me more. I think he's a psychopath. Actually, uh, interestingly, he has said that he believed that the character could be a psychopath. And so he like played that into his character a little more. Yeah. Like they, the herding of animals thing. It's mm-hmm. very like, ugh. Yeah, and he seems to switch as he matures, like when he comes back from boarding school, he seems to switch in between individual people, his interactions with them very effectively in a way that I don't think is gendered, but I think is more calculating. Yeah, like he's like, oh, this is how I should be reacting in this situation to get this outcome. Yeah, like if he had a bunny in his hands and he would see Rose, he would act a certain way. But if he had a bunny in his hands and he saw Phil... yeah. He would act a totally different way. And I don't think either of those are indicative to how he would act with the bunny on his own. You know? Well, yeah, because you're right. We see those three combinations in the film Mm -hmm. as well. Because there's the later scene where he and Phil are kind of like torturing this rabbit they see under a pile of logs. Mm -hmm. And they accidentally break the bunny's leg. Mm -hmm. And... The reactions of both men in that instance is really interesting because they both show pity, but Phil's is very, like, still very, like, angry and harsh. Like, oh, you have to put it out of its misery. Like, poor thing. Mm -hmm. He says poor thing, but he kind of throws it out. Whereas, like, Peter, like, caresses it, whispers to it, but is ultimately the one that breaks its neck. Like, does the most masculine act of, like, ending life. Mm -hmm. So... Even in the beginning when she's like, I have, I need chickens, but you do them. And he's yeah. like, yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it feels more than just like, this is life on the country of Montana. Like, it's like, this guy likes killing and seeing guts. I mean, there's multiple times in the film where he's like involved with dead creatures. Yeah. There's like cow scene as well, where he's like cutting into it with a scalpel. For someone who's called a sissy, like in every breath of this film, he seems incredibly okay with killing things. I feel like if he wasn't, we would see those scenes, you know, I, they would include a scene of him killing the chickens and him not wanting to, but they right. didn't. Yeah. It's like he has all this soft edges, but then he's able to commit these acts without even blinking. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of like, well, that's a weird, I'll, like, that's a weird version of what it means to be a man, quote unquote, mm-hmm. that's really unique to this film and this character. Oof, I had to see a lot of Bloody animal stuff in this film. But you know what? There was a very similar scene to this at the very beginning of, um, what's that movie? At the very beginning of Nightmare Alley, where the geek bites into a live chicken's throat. And that was just as violent as some of the things we saw in this film, but just felt so empty and gratuitous where, like, there's a scene where we're in a close-up of Phil castrating a bull and ripping Mm -hmm. its testicles out with his hand. But it felt like such a part of his character. I didn't blink. I didn't cover my eyes. I didn't look away. Whereas with the fucking chicken scene in Nightmare Alley, I was like, oh, no, don't look. I don't want to see it. And it was like angry after. Mm -hmm. Like she used death and violence and blood in such like a useful way. Mm -hmm. I love that. And it's, I think it's more truthful to the interactions you have when you care for as many animals as they're caring for. You Unfortunately, you do have to put them down and you can't euthanize them. Typically, it's not cost effective, especially when you're castrating 1500 bulls at once. Like if you process each instance as like an emotional traumatic event, like you would have nothing left. You would be empty. Yeah. But what I think is interesting about these moments where you see Peter kill these animals, it's done well. It's not rushed, but it's not lingered on and you don't see his face. Mm hmm. 
like we come in and we see him opening the bunny, but we see the back of him. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the same thing with the other bunny. We see Phil react when the neck is cracked. We Mm -hmm. don't see Peter. So we don't really know how he feels about any of it. Yeah. Is he enjoying it? Probably not. Is he not enjoying it? Probably not. (laughs) I think he's enjoying it (laughs) personally. (laughs) So, yeah, Jane Campion, stunning work here. Um, So I want to move on to another female player in this that really brought this film to life. And that is Ari Wagner, the cinematographer. Um, So she and Jane had only worked together in a commercial capacity. And Ari's a pretty young DP. Like she's done some fantastic work already in the last five or six years of her career. She's done Lady Macbeth. She's done this year's Zola. And she also did a weird comedy horror called In Fabric. So that, and as well as this one, shows that she's got a huge range. She's really willing to say yes to a great script. And what she does with this film, it feels so in line with what Jane Campion's vision is that I've seen in her other work. It shows me that Jane comes in with a really heavy idea of what she wants. Um, But they spent a year together in pre-production, going to all the locations, selecting them together, designing the set together, doing overheads all of this stuff before they even stepped foot and gave any go ahead to production to start building any of this stuff. So um, were there any like shots or color moments that stood out to you that you really enjoyed? This film was stunning in every regard. Lizzie would get up every few minutes to like get me wine or snacks (laughs) and she would like, I don't know, absentmindedly like pause it. And like every time you got up, I was like, I want this to be my wallpaper, like on my (laughs) computer. It's, it looks, it's reminiscent of like, if you have Mac OS's like, you know, the Monterey's, all the updates come with these different Mm -hmm. striking landscapes and it's just done so well. It's so beautiful. It really is just like a painting every frame. Yeah. But it isn't like heavy handed because sometimes Mm -hmm. some DPs can be so obsessed with creating every frame has to be this like super packed piece of art in itself. But I think what Ari did was so interesting, but simple. You know, you knew exactly where your eye needed to go. Mm-hmm. And she never did anything crazy with like insane steady cam shots or helicopters or anything like that. It was very, her hand was always on the camera. She was always in control and it was always very gentle too. And she has a great way of showing us like the most massive of landscapes and then going in and showing like a star being drawn in sugar on a table and like ultra micro so you're constantly like in this big wave of like going in coming out and I just thought it was stunning I if I could like how beautiful the landscape was and how dark the story was as well I think they did a really great job of not trying to force the story to seem more beautiful because they were in a beautiful place. Like anyone who's lived in rural anywhere can tell you that it's beautiful when you go outside, but like your problems are still very real. And sometimes you can't appreciate the things that are around you. And like, it reminds me of the reason that I hate Baz Luhrmann, (laughs) where it's like, I'm watching The Great Gatsby and like, I can't even fucking focus on what's happening between these two characters because everything's like glittery yeah, and like shining in my face. And moving everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's like, he, it's the opposite of, of this. Yeah. But at the same time, you can watch Baz Luhrmann's films five times and still see something new. But I would no. say the same thing about this as well. I will never watch a Baz Luhrmann's film. Okay. These are fighting words. You know what my favorite film of all time is? Yeah, I do. Okay. Just remember who you're talking to. I took Lizzie to see Moulin Rouge on Broadway and it was like the best day of her life. <laughs> I, was, I have never, I very rarely cry out of joy, but that was the day that that happened. Um, thank you for that. Um, also another thing, cause I'm a total nerd for one particular aspect of film that I think it's totally pushed under the rug and it needs to be taught more in film school. And that is blocking. Blocking is so important, so underrated. And I think for me personally, so difficult to do, but the way the characters physically moved around the scenes, how things were placed around them was so perfect. There was never once where I felt like that was weird or I'm lost in space. Or if I was lost, I think I was supposed to be lost. It was very intentional. So great blocking. Underrated, I agree. (laughs) Sometimes you see a movie and you're like, why is my perspective changing this way? Why are they having lunch on the same side of the table? Like a lot of things that are done sloppily and like this was not, none of that was handled this way. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you might not know it takes you out of it, but for me, like if 
if they're like cramped in this weird way that isn't you know done intentionally for the story it just like feels like film school the care it seems they've put behind all of this you can tell they were like rehearsing you know mm-hmm. yeah definitely beforehand so love that dp ari wagner you're amazing can't wait to see what you do next um so another full set of oscar nods we got here for this film is a full four acting nomination so basically every major character in this film is sporting a nomination for this year's oscars um, that includes Benny Coomberbeach. Coomberbeach. For Best Actor. Yes. Um, Cody Smith-McPhee, who plays the son Peter, and Jesse Plemons, each getting a Supporting Actor nom. And, of course, the lovely Kirsten Dunst for Best Supporting Actress. So, yeah, the last time four actors were nominated for a single movie was American Hustle, and that was, like, ten years ago. Damn. And just to say, all of them lost. And <laughs> I have a feeling this year at least two of these actors are going to win. I yeah. have a feeling. Um, who is your, like, which characters did you gravitate towards? Um, Bunny Killer. I think we'll get it over Jesse Plemons. I agree. I'm sorry, Jesse Plemons. I'm a huge fan. Um, your character just wasn't complex enough. You, I mean, he might have acted just as hard as Cody did. I mean, both House Down Boots, great job. But I think Cody just had a better role. Yeah. And he committed. He did some weird shit with that character. He did a great amount of stuff that you can tell was like, I mean, the script could be interpreted a great many different mm-hmm. ways, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, so I think what he did with his role is really masterful. It was like reminiscent of Call Me By Your Name. Just so many different scenes, like unintentional or intentional, like Kirsten Dunst coming in and being like, they need your room. He's getting kicked out of his room, mm-hmm. Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. And then like huh. the the housekeeper comes into his room at another point. He's like, get out. <laughs> Uh, just, just stuff like that. His like reservedness, um, his intrigue is like always right underneath the surface. It's not very blatant and his motives only come through after you Mm -hmm. realize what's happened. Yeah. I think he did a great job. Super, super interesting character. And he himself has such an interesting face. He has like these huge wide set eyes, like stunning, stunning features. And he's so slim Mm -hmm. and they dressed him in these like oversized clothes and it just added so much to that character for me like it added kind of like this perceived weakness that he ended up not owning at all mm-hmm. he's giving like vogue editorial you know like when you're in the middle of the magazine and it's like florals for spring or whatever and there's like a skinny boy with like a piece of hay in his mouth yeah it's very that like big eyes blank face very skinny very like contortions maybe like he's got his arms bent in some weird way like wearing a watch mm-hmm, exactly okay but like back to jesse plemons though mm-hmm. i know you're saying like he didn't have that much to do but i of all the characters he's the one i wanted more from like yeah. anytime i was like where's george he disappears for two-thirds in the movie and i'm like where's george things were better when george was here mm-hmm. he's got such a presence mm-hmm. and i love seeing him in roles where he plays like the villain i think he does it really well but it's really nice to see him in this like caring hovering role just trying to be so sweet to uh to rose I absolutely adore him. I first met him as the bully in Like Mike, (laughs) (laughs) but he also is in um, an episode of Black Mirror. Yes, iconic. The one that's like reminiscent of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And then um, I really like him in Other People, which is like um, sort of like a comedy, but it's more of a drama starring Molly Shannon. I've been trying to get Lizzie to watch it with me for the last couple of weeks. I'm in. He plays such a sweet, sweet guy in that movie, too. So, like, if you want more sweet Jesse Plemons, I got it for you. Sweet, sweet Jesse Plemons. <laughs> I know him best as Kirsten Dunst's husband. Aw, that's is so, so cute. cute. That they were playing a real couple. Mm-hmm. But let's get to the big baddie, Mr. Cumberbund. <sighs> okay, Cumberbitch. I think Cumberbitch, I was a huge fan. I think the first time I saw him was in Sherlock, and I lived for that show when it was still airing god it's something about him he's not attractive but he is you know what i mean he's got the weirdest face he looks like a little snake but i want him there was something about this movie and i was looking at him i'm like he's serving me something and then it struck me last night so i have a reference photo for lizzie of what benedict cumberbatch looks like to me like when i see him this is what i see okay 
Oh, come on. She's showing me Angel when he's getting all mad. Angel from Buffy. Yeah. So if you've seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know that like vampires can look very pretty or normal or whatever. But when they like turn to bite you, their foreheads raise and the bridge of their nose raises with it. And their eyes are kind of like sunken back beneath their like brooding eyebrows. And that's what I think of when I see Benedict Cumberbatch. Like I think something's up with his forehead. So you do not like to look at him. He's not a visual that you welcome or do you? I don't actively dislike him, but I just find that he's never in projects I would naturally Mm. like be interested in watching. Sherlock, whatever... mm. Whatever time space thing he did with Marvel, eh. and then oh, he's Doctor Strange. He and then he saw in these like really dark and slow other things. I just have never come across him organically in a way that I've been excited about. <laughs> yeah, your algorithm doesn't cross the Benny Cumberbatch loop. It hey, does not. That's fine. You got here eventually. Welcome. I did. It took me a gay cowboy to get here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But there are so many iconic scenes, and I got to tell you, this man. He commits to his roles. He's now that Daniel Day is out of the picture, he's going to be the next Daniel Day because apparently on set, he refused to talk to Kirsten Dunst, which is fucking ignore her and like just stayed in character for the entirety of filming. Bullshit. What? Stop. Okay. I like this movie. Let me be very, very clear. (laughs) I really love this movie. It's better than most other movies that are being nominated this year at the Oscars. He was so in character. He couldn't do an accent. Oh, oh, she said it. She said it here, folks. That's a hot take. Well, I think he did a fantastic job in this role. I just know Daniel Day Lewis would have done a motherfucking accent, a better accent. Okay, I gotta tell you, he could have done a better accent, but everything else, he gave his 110,000%. He learned to play the banjo, he learned how to castrate bulls. He lived in Glacier, which is in northern Montana, for like two weeks. You can't just say that. He learned how to castrate bulls. I said what I said. Who said that? <laughs> who who said that? The internet. What part of the internet said that? Okay. Part of his training was he went to Glacier National Park in northern Montana for several weeks to learn cowboy stuff, to learn how to play the banjo, to work on his accent. <laughs> There's a workshop for all of this at this place. <laughs> and to castrate bulls. He got his schedule back. He's like, Jesse, let me see your schedule. He's like, fuck, <laughs> I have bull castration on Friday morning. <laughs> Oh, don't worry. It's Cumberbatch used a prosthetic bull scrotum during the film. So has he ever done it? I need to know. Yes. He's done it? Yes. According to the internet, yes. Huh. I don't know why, but that makes me like it, like the performance more. He committed. I'm saying he he really cared about this role. And, you know, I'll often lay out their critique. Why is like why isn't a gay man in this role? But I got to hand it to him. He fucking did his homework. And not even just in the physicality of, you know, the activities that he had to do as a cowboy, but the emotional work of this scene. He committed. He could have looked like a damn fool. And at times I wanted to laugh He when he's rubbing mud all over his body. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that was one of the images that made me realize, holy shit, I'm working with a different movie here. This is something more than just a plain old cowboy western Okay, if you were to throw in your votes for which of these actors is going to win? I think it's going to be Cumberbitch. I think it's going to be Cody. And I think it's going to be Dunst. Mm, really? Maybe not Dunst. Maybe not Dunst. If she had been given more, I think she could have. But her role was smaller. And ugh, but that scene, we can talk about it later. But that scene. No, let's talk about it now. Kirsten Dunst did an incredible job. That scene in particular where she's having dinner with the governor and she's like almost paralyzed by anxiety was difficult to more difficult for me to watch than them killing animals. Yeah. And it was your heart goes out to her. And I honestly I I wish we got to see more of her as she like fell into alcoholism. Mm-hmm. But I think they they did it in these nice broad strokes that really help visualize what it's like to have a loved one fall down a pit like that, where like it's kind of slow at first. And then before you realize that they're completely off the deep end and there's really no helping them anymore. Yeah. And Phil was like the direct trajectory of Phil's fucking with Rose, like directly correlates with her drinking. Mm-hmm. Like he was it was kind of hard for me to believe the first time that he would be the catalyst to make her do that. I was like, well, was he that mean to her? But then on the second watch, I was like, he was fucking with her actively. It wasn't mm-hmm. just like he's a jerk on his own little world. 
she tried to say that he was like, oh, he's just a man. I didn't believe it for a second. Mm-mm. He tortured her. Yeah. And no one else could notice. Maybe Cody or um, maybe Peter. Yeah. Yeah. In in ways that are like so childish that and so like unsophisticatedly just overt bullying, like boring styles of bullying, mm-hmm. you know, like you know, we're introduced to Benedict Cumberbatch. We're, excuse me. We're introduced to Phil and we're like, oh, he's a bully. And you're like, surely he will bully in ways that I haven't considered yet. No, he doesn't. He's like, you are a sissy. Yeah. <laughs> and then he looks at Kristen Dunst and he's like, you didn't play piano for them? And yeah. then he brings oh out his banjo God. and he's like. He's so petty. The scene where he hears her tinkering on the piano, that little tune, and then just plays it outright on his his banjo. I was like, oh, that petty queer mm-hmm. I, I honestly live for it though i was like of course she's gonna feel like shit mm-hmm. Ooh, i just need tingles like fuck that guy love him <laughs> um okay so moving on down our nominations list power of the dog also got many many nods at the craftsmanship awards i like to call them so i'll just briefly go through um original score sound production design and editing so talking about editing first My friend Stephen File, a wonderful editor, says the best kind of editing is editing that you don't notice. And when I saw that this film was nominated for editing, I kind of had to be like, huh, you're right. It is such good editing because it's some editing is something I usually do have an eye on. But the pacing and the cut points were so for me were so perfect. I never really noticed or got distracted by them. And the pacing was consistent but not stagnant mm-hmm. um like some scenes were covered super well some were covered in a single shot and they all felt that that was done for thematic reasons my favorite example is um at the top of one of the chapters peter in his like new little jeans and new little shirt um crosses the entire camp in a single one shot to go look at a crow's nest and the entire time he's walking without a single cut point you hear all the men of the camp like whistling at him and calling him awful words and just being so mean and then he kind of like gazes up at the crow's nest and then turns and makes that whole walk back but this time when he walks back no one says a word and he kind of has his hands on his hips and his head high and that's just such a great scene because he they attempt to make him powerless on the walk there, but he regains power on his walk back. And I, I couldn't think of a better way to edit that scene. And it required no edit points at all. Mm-hmm. But that's like choosing not to cut is just as much a mark of a good editor as when to cut. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And when you describe the scene, I don't think that I felt like, you know, when he turns on his hill and walk back. I don't know if I felt that he gained confidence on the walk back. You really? No, I don't. I think that he got to the bird and was like, okay. He like looked at it for an amount of time that doesn't seem like, you know, he saw it, was super interested into it, got to it, and then like sort of glanced at it and like walked away. You know, like when you're at the Louvre or whatever and everyone's in line to see the Mona Lisa and you're like, you get up to it and you're like, that's it. And you kind of just like walk away. (laughs) (laughs) It is rather small. (laughs) Yeah. It seemed like he was like, saw it and then just like turned and walked away. I guess the fact that his body language didn't close down, it opened up Mm. and he didn't make a comment. He didn't look defeated. That to me means he refused to acknowledge or care that anyone was calling him the Mm F-bomb. So... I interpreted that as him receiving power because no one bothered to whistle at him on the way back. But mm. yeah, teach his own. Yeah, maybe on the second watch, it'll like, I'll, I won't be thinking about the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, fantastic. Um, and, and the same with sound. The sound designer, it was very subtle sound, nothing crazy. Um, and sound effects really gave a quality to the story that I thought was really special. Uh, on second watch, I kind of noticed these moments where the sound sound designer added these like finality notes. Like a perfect example is a sequence of footsteps following a character. The last footstep would end in this way that was like almost a punctuation. Or if there was like a, a banjo or a piano line, the last note would have this like beautiful like ending, like almost reverberant quality. It's so subtle. It's so subtle, but it plays so well into the like longing and the question mark that this whole film bring, brings in every other aspect and 
it wasn't crazy. It didn't have to kill you. Or like the tightening of the rope on Phil's hip. There's these multiple shots where you see him like pulling the rope and pressing it to his hip Mm -hmm. and kind of stretching it. Mm -hmm. And just the stretch of the leather. I was just like, I was like, ah, my spine is like tingling. That was so satisfying with the sound and the cinematography it made me really want to like pull on it like it made my hands kind of tense as if I was it's just like I was listening to this interview from the actor who plays Tom in Succession who's who plays Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice isn't it Pride and Prejudice? Yeah, uh-huh. Matthew McFadden. Yeah and he, they were asking him about that scene where he like helps Keira Knightley onto the <sighs> what do you call it? Carriage. And then they show his hand just like tensing. Tensing. It's like a a shot on that. Yeah. And they were asking him like, how was that written in the script? Like, how did that come to be? And he was like, you know, me and Kira were just rehearsing and the director just saw me do that. And then just like took, told the cinematographer, like catch that. Um, And it, it wasn't intended, you know, initially. And wow. I think it's just one of those things that like, if you have, a director who is paying attention mm-hmm. and a cinematographer who can understand the language that the director is speaking, like these nice things can just get baked right in. Yeah, exactly. This is just like, like the cake is made and these are just like perfect flourishes to add to something that's already substantial. Mm-hmm. Like these shots and these noises would mean nothing if there was nothing to reverberate from, you know? Ah, oh, so good. So fucking good. And that kind of leads directly into the score, which, holy shit, was so simple yet again, but so good. And actually, the score composer is the same from Spencer. Hmm. Uh, His name is Johnny Greenwood. So he's had an amazing year. He didn't receive a nom for Spencer, which I think is... We're going to talk about that in a a later episode. Um, But some of his other films also include some really iconic score work, such as There Will Be Blood with Paul... Paul Thomas Anderson. Dalpano. Dalpano. <laughs> we need to talk about Kevin. Uh, you Were Never Really Here, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, so those are, um, he's done the score for a bunch of Lynn Ramsey's mm-hmm. films. Lynn you Lynn Were Never Really Here. I haven't Oof. seen that yet. I'm dying. It is, might be one of the best movies I've ever seen. Really? It is fantastic. Yes. It was completely like disregarded the year that it came out. I agree. I never really heard anything about it, which I guess is why I didn't heavily pursue it. But. I would have talked to you about it, but I assumed you saw it with me. Wow. No. It is so fucking good. It's my favorite Joaquin, I think, really? ever. Yeah. Damn. And you're saying that and we've seen signs. <laughs> Another one of those movies that I go to Letterbox and I was like, yep, I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> no additional comments. None, none needed. <laughs> so yeah, Johnny Greenwood, great year. Would love to see him catch this win. And yeah, fun facts, because whatever. I've got a fucking pocket full of them. So this film was delayed by COVID. So whenever they finally did get to shoot and go into post, it was like heavy lockdown. Um, so he did this score entirely from his home. He didn't work with an orchestra like he usually does or any live musicians. He did all of the orchestral work himself by just layering instrument after instrument from his home, which I think is so interesting. And again, whether it was intended or not, I think added to this film of the loneliness and the solidarity and the singleness. Because even if you can't tell that there isn't multiple musicians just off the bat, I think a quality of that does end up reverberating in the score because it's a single person's hands making these notes it's only going to sound like a certain solitary way in my mind maybe i'm thinking too much that would never happens i would have just enjoyed it to all been banjo the whole time i love the banjo i love it too what a great instrument um and then lastly of our craftsmanship (laughs) nominations um production design sexy great there are some details in the production design that I didn't catch the first go around. One of my favorites being the little leather hearts on Bronco Henry's saddle that gay. I didn't catch the first time. Yeah. Gay. Gay, gay, gay. Gay, okay. gay, 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 gay. And the little paper flowers. Just fantastic set pieces. It doesn't have to be fucking a spaceship made out of VFX to mm-hmm. make an effect. I think, yeah, when you see in movies, they've taken the time to understand how a character would live in the house. You know, if you pay attention to movies, kitchens, you're like, why don't they have a coffee maker out? Mm -hmm. 
or, or just things like, oh, they don't cook in this kitchen or, oh, they they don't listen to music in their living room. Like, yeah, these little details that all add up, especially whenever you have so many skilled filmmakers all giving these little details like you could watch this movie a thousand times and probably catch something new every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, the in case of emergency rope in like the rooms and stuff. Like the house doesn't catch on fire, but it's like nice that they've showed us. Yeah. And ropes and leather are such a huge part of this movie. And we're definitely going to dive into that. OK, so the next category that this film was nominated in that I really agree with is adapted screenplay. So the film, like I mentioned earlier, is adapted directly by Jane Campion. She wrote the script. Uh, it was adapted from a Thomas Savage book from 1967. And Jane Campion read the book, became super addicted to it, and honestly stays pretty close to the book. If anything, she just omits things, but she doesn't really add too much, which makes me really want to read the book. <laughs> um, but I want to get a used copy. I looked for mm-hmm. copies online, but they were all like new hardcover releases. And I was like, no, mm-hmm. I want it to be dirty. I want it to be missing pages. You gotta use your thrift books points on exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and um, one of the ways that she pays homage to this film is by dividing the film into chapters with numbers. I think there's five chapters. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? I love that. And I appreciated that it seems cheap sometimes when they do like 10 years later and they skip the yeah. part where the couple gets divorced or when the dog dies. It's like, those are the parts that I think are important. And she she skips, she goes between these chapters, but she doesn't skip a huge amount of time. Mm-hmm. She'll maybe skip the move, you know, right. or the long drive or just like things like that, um, which I think is considerate of the viewer's time. Um, but she never skipped anything that I felt like she was afraid to dive into. Yeah. And we mentioned earlier, like the accelerated pace of Rose's alcoholism because it kind of happens like we get one scene of her downing a cocktail at the end of one chapter and then by the next chapter she's like full-on ill mm-hmm. um but I love that she had this way of like cutting that time and getting us there because it allowed her to focus and add so much more like I think she did more with this or she was able to do more with this because of the chapters like you're saying like it was this beautiful amount of time where like things could happen but we didn't have to sit there and watch like, oh, another scene of her. Oh, she's drinking two cocktails this time. You know what I mean? It's just smart filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And there's something sexy about breaking things into parts. Like Moonlight does the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I just love that. It kind of, I don't know, tickles me. I think the only thing that they skipped that I would have liked to see would be Peter's reaction to Phil's death. But mm-hmm. like I said, they never show Peter's reaction to any death. Yeah, that's true. He's not at the funeral. I noticed that on the second watch. Yeah, so it's so it's in the same like it it tracks with how they um, portray Peter very well. Yeah, he kind of gets lost in these chapters a little bit, but still remains very much a part of the story mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, I also wanted to talk about the title, "The Power of the Dog." Obviously, based on the film. It's a direct reference to a quote from the Bible, Psalm 23, which says, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. But there's so much more in this film that I think is indicative of that title. I mean, there's dogs and dog imagery laced throughout. And there's also this kind of theme of Phil constantly be following, (laughs) constantly being followed around by his like pack of men, these like it feels like a pack of dogs who so they're always like bumping into each other and running around and they need to be fed, that kind of thing. And I was wondering what you thought of the title and any other thoughts you had about the theme of dogs? Yeah, I think it was, um, I didn't consider like these young men following him being like, what do you want to do next? You know, like <laughs> they're, they're obviously seeking some sort of affirmation from him and um, they're loyal to them. So like, yeah, that's like another layer of it. I didn't even consider um, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the Bible doesn't. So I was like, if I can understand the Psalm through the themes of this movie, like that's a bonus. But I, I did, I guess I didn't try to read too much into the title itself. Yeah. Deliver my darling from the power of the dog, which like by the end of the movie, like who's, who's the dog? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, it, and who's being delivered? It also, what I took the title to mean on first watch was that 
Bronco Henry, who saw this dog, was the most powerful thing to Phil. Mm-hmm. And he was, he's was he been searching for that since Bronco Henry's died. And when Peter just says, well, it's a dog, it's like the power was transferred right to him. Mm-hmm. God, fucking Phil talks about Bronco Henry like they like just broken up or something. Mm. It's like in every, well, like, well, Bronco Henry, like fucking eating eggs. And I'm like, shut <laughs> up. But Bronco Henry. Yeah. I was desperate to see a photo of Bronco Henry. I'm glad we didn't. Yeah. I guess it would have ruined it a little bit. Cause mm-hmm. he was just like this guy on a pedestal, even though he was probably just a man. Yeah. And this transference of like his feelings to Bronco Henry and the, this power of the dog transferring to Peter, like you see around that time, Phil will say, oh, well, Bronco Henry was your age when he learned how to ride horses. And then he'll say, I was your age when I met Bronco Henry. Like he keeps projecting all of this onto Peter. Yeah. It's like he's trying to initiate Peter into his pack, just like Bronco Henry initiated him and like pass on this legacy. And that's why like in the end, when he's so sick and like stumbling to the car, supposed to be getting to a hospital, all he can really care about is the rope. Where's the boy? I need to give this boy the rope. I need to pass this on for Bronco Henry. Do you think that it's a pack like that Bronco Henry and Phil were in a pack of their own? Or do you think that they were in this pack of other men? What do you mean by pack? I feel like just the imagery of Phil being followed around by these men, like just had such a dog-like quality to me and he's the alpha. So I think Phil's attempts to alienate Rose and alienate Peter or to kind of like push them out of the pack because the idea in nature is that like a pack of wolves travels together, fights together, hunts together, sleeps together, protects each other. But one wolf being kicked out would die, basically. But that's his view. But I think what we learn here is that the lone wolf becomes even more threatening than the whole pack because Peter is able to basically take him down without even trying, you know? Hmm. So it just had this very like hierarchy of wolf pack and hierarchy of a group of dogs to me. I see the group of dogs thing, but I always just thought of Bronco Henry and Phil as living in their own world, devoid of any of these people. Like it seemed like I can imagine if Bronco Henry was alive and Phil was like following at his heels, like he wouldn't want those other people to be around, you know, because what they had seemed like super private. And it's not like with Phil's relationship with Peter currently, it's not like he is trying to bring him around all these other men. He like very quickly takes him and does Mm -hmm. individual solo things with him as well. So I definitely see the pack thing with him and all these other like masculine men, but I don't know if, if I could see Bronco Henry in a pack with him, maybe. Well, from the very beginning, like when they're all eating fried chicken together and taking the shot at the bar, like all the men were familiar with Bronco Henry because they ask Phil about stories about him or, you know, like, did Bronco Henry ever eat here at this inn? He's like, no, he ate at this other place. Mm -hmm. Did he ever do this? Is this how he would have done it? Yeah, this is how he would have done it. So I do think that it was less about Phil trying to bring Peter into his pack and more of like pruning him to be the leader of his own. You know, I think Bronco Henry was the head of a pack and brought up Phil to be the leader of his own pack. And I think Peter was, I mean, Phil was trying to do the same with Peter. Like, this is how you be a leader of your own group. But Peter obviously is like, no, I'm good on my own. It's just me, maybe my mom, maybe Rose, you know. Hmm. And he's like, no, thanks. I don't need a pack. I have more power on my own kind of deal. Interesting. Okay. So power of the dog. All right, Sam, this is the last bit, but it's the best bit. I want to talk about... (laughs) Bit, because of horses. (laughs) I want to talk about the queerness of this film. Thank fucking goodness, Lizzie. Hell yeah, brother. (laughs) You've just been talking about Benedict Cumberbatch for the last two hours. (laughs) And landscape porn. Yeah. Okay, so I went into this movie and did not realize it would have anything gay about it at all. And so I kept getting these like little waves... I mean, and like, you know, Peter presents pretty hand down. You Mm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. But the moment I knew that I was like, this is, this is like gay for real. Mm -hmm. This is like affecting me. Mm -hmm. Is that scene where Benny Cumberbatch is in his little globe world, his little sunshine world. Mm -hmm. And he's laying on the edge of that hill shirtless. And he's got that Bronco Henry handkerchief. And he's just like 
he's making love to it. He's rubbing it all over his body, shoves it down his pants. There's like a horse in the background. Ooh, I was in trouble. I was like, this, this was giving me the same vibes as Call Me By Your Name. Like the same scratch was being itched. It was, I wanted to tell you while we were watching it, but I wanted to save it for this. It was the exact same feeling I got in Call Me By Your Name where he puts the swim trunks over his head and it's like fucking the bed. Yes. Yes, It was the same exact vibes. (sighs) So intimate. So, yeah. Like how can you have sex with someone that isn't even there? (laughs) Yeah. And also he has this like emphasis on like being dirty. Yeah. And we also learned that he's an incredibly intelligent man. Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah, he went to Yale. Educated to the gods and stuff. So it's like. Oh, he's intentionally trying to keep people away from him. Yeah. In whether he's being an outright bully and like spitting insults or if he just reeks. Mm-hmm. And the only time you see him clean is when he has these moments in this like clearing with the like spirit of Bronco Henry. Yeah. It's like the only time he wants to actually be seen. Wow. God, I didn't even clock that, that him being dirty would be a way to be on his own. And like, of course, he creates this little like gay heaven for himself with like his magazines, his Bronco Henry memorabilia, Mm -hmm. his little watering hole with the leeches. Mm -hmm. But Peter snips it out in like 15 seconds. Get out of here, you little bitch. (laughs) I was like... That scene made me so nervous. I, Lizzie, Lizzie having had seen this before and then she's just getting my live audio remarks sitting next to her. And I have such a radar for shit like this because I've seen so many horror movies and I've lived my life as a gay person. So when he finds this memorabilia, I'm saying to Lizzie, run, 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 (laughs) get up and run. And then he like walks into this clearing and sees him. I'm like, turn around and fucking run. I'm like, I feel like he's going to get hate crimed. Yeah. Like. Benedict Cumberbatch, I clocked this as being gay. I, I mean, obviously I saw the character of Peter gay, like right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But when Benedict Cumberbatch seeks him out and just drills into him, that first scene when they're at the, the lodge, I'm like, oh, that's a sort of self-hatred. Mm-hmm. And so the whole movie, I was afraid for them to be alone together because I was afraid he was going to kill him. Yeah. And so this was for me when I was watching, I was like, oh, this is the moment where he kills him. Fortunately, he doesn't. But you said quite the opposite. (laughs) You said like, while we were watching this, you couldn't help yourself. I I could tell you're trying not to color my view of things. I was trying to be neutral so hard. (laughs) You were like, this boy's, (laughs) you're like, he doesn't have a fight or a flight. (laughs) Just kind of stands there awkwardly. Like staring at Benny's like 19 abs. And again, another moment where we don't get to see Peter's face. So we don't know how he feels about finding Benedict Cumberbatch in this situation. He had no idea. He's a psychopath. I don't think he does feel. I don't want to say I don't think he does feel. Like he didn't. Like he knows he he has self-preservation. No. (laughs) But he didn't have to like emotionally unpack from that moment. I think that his... Um, the most like emotion we see him convey is of interest. And it's not of an interest that implies that he likes it or he doesn't like it. Right. So I think that them not showing him in these moments leaves a lot for the audience to contemplate. And I also think it really conveys that like he probably wasn't even thinking anything of it. He yeah. was just curious, which is spooky. Super spooky. He's a curious lad. So... I can't. I'm so excited to talk about this. This is my favorite part of the whole movie. Mm. And that is like how leather and ropes are used mm. in this film. Mm-hmm. This is like Maplethorpe Wild West mm-hmm. material right here. Mm-hmm. Visually, the ropes they were weaving and the leather hides and everything was like very stunning and obviously transports you to that location immediately. But As with all things on subtextual, we know there's much more going on here. I would love to hear, before I start rattling on with my, like, 18 pages of notes about this, I mean, yeah, did you clock, like, the use of ropes, and did you see it tie in uh, uh, to the queerness factor of this movie in any way? Yeah, I think that there's a thematic implication with ropes and wildlife, like a an animal as majestic and humongous as a horse who weighs a few tons can be held by like a half a pound worth of, you know, braided rope. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that also can be tied into masculinity and 
I think that leather has um, huge like cultural significance yeah. in gay culture. So I think that was such a beautiful like piece of storytelling to use for this. Yeah, it was a perfect way to show that all cowboys are gay. No, but seriously, it was a great choice by Jane Campion to really lean into those visuals because it comes up time and time and time again. I mean, the leather saddle of Bronco Henry's that Phil literally keeps on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this scene where pretty much the first time he and Peter really get to hang out, he takes him aside in the barn and tells him to like sit on the saddle, like feel your weight in it. And to me, it just kind of read as this like, here, kid, let me show you the ropes. It's a dick. Kinda, yeah. The saddle is a this. dick. Right. Exactly. And when he's sad and he's throwing a tantrum, he needs to go out of the barn and like sit on the dick. Yeah. He just misses his lover so much. It's like it's ruining his life. He's letting it ruin his personality. He's so angry. He won't let anyone else near him. And he won't let anyone else near his leather. Like the scene with the hides, the fucking hides. Mm -hmm. That this scene drove me crazy the first time I watched it. And I think a lot of things clicked into place the second time around. But it really fused to me that like these hides and these leather and these things that he's gleaning from these cows are under his control because they are all he has left of Bronco Henry. Mm -hmm. Is what Bronco Henry taught him, which was how to kill a cow, how to castrate, how to ride, how to braid rope. And so he doesn't want anyone near his precious hides and would rather burn them than have someone else touch them. But here he is letting Peter crawl up on his saddle and take a little ride. It I just reads so gay to me. I don't think that Phil misses Bronco Henry. I think Phil misses himself. I think that most of his dialogue is referencing this time with Bronco Henry mm -hmm. and he's doing his best to preserve this memory of him. And he, he even makes sure he like checks the other characters, like his brother. He's like, you have to have respect. He's Bronco Henry's taught us everything we've known mm -hmm. and, and whatever. And I think that it's not a service to Bronco Henry or his memory. I think it's a service to himself in keeping these memories pristine in his mind. Mm -hmm. And I think when Bronco Henry passed and he's adopted this system of making himself reek so as not to be around other people, I think that he's become like a recluse and he hasn't want to move on from the death. Mm -hmm. And so when I see him interacting with Peter, I don't see him wanting to share Bronco Henry with Peter. Mm -hmm. I see him wanting to be himself again with Peter. And mm -hmm. the only way he knows how to be himself is to do these like riding horse things that's the only yeah, way he's ever for him. Yeah. known to have to share this intimacy with anyone yeah i feel that i feel like it's more of like a recreation for him you know what i just realized there's one scene i would have loved to have seen in this film and that's like one that we saw in call me by your name which is phil bringing peter to his like special swimming hole mm -hmm. but I mean, this film doesn't give us any of the tenderness that we want because it's not that movie. But wouldn't that have been so nice? Mm -hmm. Like, well, because I see what you're saying now. And I think you're right. He wants to, like, bring him into his world and show him all the things that Bronco Henry showed him and, like, kind of bring him into the time capsule. And I think the perfect way to do that would have been to, like, invite him into that world that he has literally hidden away for himself to just, like, be with Bronco and be with himself and be in that time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's probably best that he died like this because his life wasn't really going to get much better. He was never going to like let go and let love. He was never going to find another lover. You know what I mean? It died or was murdered? Murdered? Murder. I smell murder. I smell like murder. But I do have a hot take. I think at the end of the film, Peter misses Phil. I don't think he regrets doing what he did to kill him, but I think that he will... So you think he did? Yeah, he definitely did. Intentionally? Intentionally. 100%. Mm. I think he had that plan in his mind for a while, because, I mean, he went out into the countryside to, like, gather this anthrax. Did he know? Yeah. Because characters... So. Other characters mention the anthrax, but he never does. But he looked it up in his um, medical book. Mm. Which makes me wonder, did he just pretend to get closer to Phil to like be able to learn his weakness and find a way to destroy him if he needed? I don't think so. I think, like I said, like he is just a 
darkly curious person. Mm -hmm. And I think that he collected this hide, whether he knew what he was going to do with it or not. And then it just like was a beautiful, you know, happenstance. And I, I really... So you don't think he actually meant to give him anthrax? No, no, I think he did. Oh, okay. But I don't think it was like a plan that he, from inception, sought out an animal to right. do these things. I think that he just would have this anyways. And then the moment presented itself. Yeah. But you mentioned like there's not a scene where he brings him to this like water hole. And it's true there isn't. But there is like, I guess the most intimacy that I see them have is in that scene where... Peter offers Phil the hide that he has and Phil says like the rest of your life is going to be so easy. Mm. What, what's the line that he says? It's like something like that. It's like I'm going to make the rest of your life so simple or something like that. But he says like you're going to be good from now on basically. Yeah like I'm going to make things good for you from now on. Yeah. Yeah that was like I think the most intimacy we see them really share except for yeah. the cigarette moment. Oh! And him telling him the story about how he crawled into that bedroll with Bronco Henry. He basically tells him, like, I was in love with and had sex with Bronco Henry. Wait, no. Well, how does he say that? Peter asks Phil, how old were you when you met Bronco Henry? And Phil says, I was about your age, actually. He saved my life one time. We were caught in a storm and we had to sleep skin to skin next to each other in the bedroll. And Peter goes, naked? Mm -hmm. And then he rolls that cigarette and brings it to him to smoke. It's like fucking simmering. Mm, I see. Such a but he doesn't. Scene. He doesn't say like we had sex. No, but okay. like I thought I missed. I was like, how the fuck did no, I? He do, oh no, okay. no, 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 he doesn't. Okay. He says it subtextually. <laughs> subtextually, ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> and then like this symbolism of smoking a cigarette together is a tale as old as time. Mm -hmm. That's been uh, like a um, euphemism for sex since like the fucking twenties. Yeah, sharing a cigarette is very intimate. Very intimate. Mm -hmm. Especially because Peter rolls it for him and like licks the edge. It's just like all so fucking horny. Yeah. God, would you have wanted to see them share like an actual physical moment? No. I think that Phil's interest in Peter is solely a selfish endeavor to recreate whatever he did feel with Bronco Henry. But I don't believe that he has any sexual like inherent sexual interest. I think he's working so hard to try to feel something again. And he's putting Peter in this place. Like Bronco Henry seems like Phil's actual type, like someone he would yeah. actually be attracted to. Mm -hmm. And Peter, he just recognizes as a gay man. And he so, wants to like groom him into his type. Exactly. He wants to like copy paste him. Yeah. And he's working hard, but like inherently, I don't think that they're attracted to, to each other. So I'm not mm -hmm. very curious to see what that would look like i think it would really make me sad yeah it would make me sad too you're right damn did you feel robbed of the scene no no i think the cigarette was enough yeah more than enough mm -hmm. and then another really important moment for me that really wrapped up their relationship was seeing peter have that moment sitting on the bed like clutching the rope that phil made him and then you realize he has the gloves on yeah that's that's when i knew he, but he tucks it under the bed. I'm like, he's going to keep that rope for the rest of his life. For whatever reason, we don't know because he won't show us his face. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're allowed to make your own decisions. And I choose to think that he did feel some kinship to him from queer person to queer person. But yeah, there was no, there was never going to be love there. I disagree. I don't think he cared about him being gay at all. Really? I think it was just a curiosity. Yeah. Just like another thing to observe that he hadn't encountered before. Yeah, maybe so. We'll never know. We'll Not until the sequel. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> the power of the cat <laughs> about lesbians. <laughs> I love for that. I okay. Love for that. Okay. Do you have any other thoughts? Any other scenes or? Yes. Uh, you very conveniently did not mention this at all, but. I don't know if I love that this was shot in New Zealand. I love the way that it looked. I did not love that the accents were inaccurate. And I did not love <laughs> that it was very clearly New Zealand. It was like very clearly New Zealand. I liked it more because of that. It, it was, added like this alienness to it. It was striking, but I think it, I kind of just wanted it to be about New Zealand because they also have native people of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. They could have changed it culturally or not used landscapes that were so clearly not Montana. Mm -hmm. It it kind of gave me this like 
weird, I don't want to say vibe because that's too vague, but like it's beautiful and it's stunning and I don't want the look of it to change, but it really did kind of take me out of it. Hmm. (laughs) The fact that their accents don't match each other is also fucking weird. And the fact that they're not shooting in Montana and very clearly are shooting in New Zealand. I liked it better this way. That is totally fine. Uh, Do you, (laughs) you know what this reminds me of? Hold on. Let me see if I can find it. I'm proud of us. We only brought up Brokeback Mountain like three times. Call me by your name like six times. (laughs) Yeah, somehow that got brought up way more. A film set in Europe. God damn. No, I can't find it. What? Okay. I don't know how much of the L word you remember. OG, much. So, you know, in season six where Jenny like is shooting the movie Mm -hmm. based off the book, based (laughs) off of all of their lives. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they make this like in joke where... They're taking Jenny location scouting (laughs) and she's like, they take her to Canada (laughs) and she was like, I'm not going to shoot fucking Canada for L.A. No one would ever believe that. And it's like a joke because they've been shooting. shooting (laughs) (laughs) So it just you're saying like Jane Campion and the DP were scouting for a year and then just said, fuck it. Why don't we just do it in New Zealand where we met like a year ago? Probably. (laughs) You know, I wonder, I think they did consider Montana, but I wonder for how long you think they why wouldn't they? It's in Montana. But Both of them live in New Zealand. They're taking our jobs, Lizzie. <laughs> they took our jobs. <laughs> what? Anything else you have to say, Lizzie? No. I've said everything. She's run a marathon, you guys. She's <laughs> like huffing and puffing, sweating. Oh, I'm fucking exhausted. You did a great job. This is a good movie. Thanks, babe. This was this is why subtextual exists because. Instead of just having this conversation over like 17 beers at a bar, we get to record it and put it on the internet. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like this is the kind of stuff I'm left with during my work way, like during my work day where I'm like sending an email and I'm like, why did he kill that rabbit? Why did he cover himself in mud? Why was he wearing gloves? Did he mean to kill that guy? Leather is gay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's score this motherfucker. On a scale of one to ten. Wait, time out. Okay. Before we score this, I've heard from viewers, meaning my girlfriend, <laughs> tell me that she doesn't exactly understand how the scores work. Okay. So let me just explain it very quickly. So we have two categories. How good is the movie out of ten? Lizzie gets ten points. I get ten points. And then how gay is the movie out of ten? Lizzie gets her ten points. I get my ten points. And we average all of those together together. And then we divide them by 40 to get an overall score. So I think she was confused. Like if it's a good movie, why does it have a bad score? If it's a gay movie, but it's bad. And it's like, it has to be gay and good to get a high score. Yep. Them's the rules. That's just the way it is. Sorry, folks. This is our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Take it up with the boss. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) On a scale of one to 10, overall, what would you score this movie? I'd give it a 10. Damn. You might think just because I wanted it to be shot in Montana that I don't like it. (laughs) It's not even a nine. Okay. I'll give it a nine and a half. I'm not sure what the half was. (laughs) Just to be different, I guess. Okay. On a scale of one to ten, how gay is this film? Ten. Ten. I agree with you, Dare. Ten plus ten plus ten plus nine point five is a total of 39.5 divided by 40, which is the most points it could possibly have. So the average is 9.875. So basically a 10. Not a 10. Not a 10. It's not a carol, but it's close. I think it's a carol. Yeah? You can bump it up. Hell. Should I give it a 10? (laughs) Heck. (laughs) Why don't we just get wild? No, we're giving it a 9.5. Lizzie. Okay, fine. We're giving it a No, 10. no, no. I shouldn't bully you. No, 9.5. I know when a movie's a 10, this is a 9.5. And let the record show. Let the record show. Mm-hmm. Sam, you think in your past life you were a cowboy? In my current life, I'm a fucking cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was produced and engineered by Lee Garcia. Your hosts are Lizzie Guitro and Sam De La Fuente. Editing by Lizzie. Music by DJ No. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at SubtextualPod. 